0: Behavior, bitches.
1: Hey guys, it's Liat and Casey and guess what? This is the first episode of our second season. I don't know if it's really a season. It really just happens to be our one year anniversary that we've been doing the podcast. So this is the first episode of our second year, episode 51. Casey, what rhyme do you have for us?
0: All right episode 51 I still can't get my hair done so it's staying in a bun if anyone is experiencing COVID as well as we um we know that we can't get our hair done and I've got tons of grays and my roots are horrible so that's my rhyme and I know they're crappy and they're only gonna get worse in season two but um or we're gonna repeat them who knows But it's something to make you laugh and smile when we intro into this episode. Um, Holy shit, Liat, we made it to season two. When we started this on May 23rd of last year, I never imagined we'd be sitting here on episode 51.
1: I know. And I can't believe we've kept it just knowing us as a weekly thing. I know. I I thought at some point we'd be like, okay, let's do it every month. Okay, let's do it every six weeks. But no, we are bringing it to you every week. And the cool thing is, You'd think we'd run out of topics, but the people just keep getting cooler and cooler. And what's really happened is how we find a lot of our guests is one guest we have on will know someone else and they make the intro, who you knows someone else who makes the intro for the next show. And so it's just gotten cooler and cooler. And we're just so thankful for the cool people we've gotten to speak to. We've had so much fun over season one and now we're ready to start our second year Thanks guys for continuing to support us. We love you and mean it. As you know, but before we get started, we know that we like to pair ourselves or actually really pair I guess it would not be pairing ourselves. It would be starting the session with some reinforcement for ourselves the same way you would with a client. So Casey, what's our review of the day?
0: So we're going to mix it up a little bit in season 2, and I'm going to go back to the drawing board. I went into our Patreon messages. If Anyone doesn't know, we um, do have a Patreon and there are supporters. They um, make these episodes possible. And I was reading some messages today that need to be shared. um, And one of them is from Haley Robertson. Shout out, you purple tomato on Instagram. Um, It said, Thank you for the March motivation. We send motivation monthly. It's amazing. Um, I never thought I'd ever say that. I look forward to Mondays. And y'all have done that for me. Each week, I look forward to the laughs, the knowledge, the vocab, especially the vocab. Leot, your robot voice. And Casey, so sorry, your terrible rhymes. Case, for real girl, they're not great, but they make my day each time, so stick with it. Before the plague hit, I would spend roughly three plus hours on average in my car every freaking day. So needless to say, I've probably listened to each episode at least four times over. I could listen to the same episode 10 times in a row and still find something new during each episode. Side note, if you ever want a nerd to collect IOA data, I'm like your girl. Thank you for that message. It was a lot longer, but I cut out just like a nice little chunk of it for the show today. Thank you, Haley, for not only being a patron and supporting us on that so we can keep bringing these episodes, but for your sweet message, it meant a lot.
1: All right. Today, our guest is freaking amazing. We're so excited. I know we always say this, but this is the most well-rounded guy I've ever seen or seen a resume of. His resume is literally 17 pages and not 17 pages of bullshit. 17 very needed pages. And I feel like he probably only put his top accomplishments on there. And this person, before we go further... And Casey makes the intro. He had sent us his Dropbox of some of the articles that he's written. I'm going to tell you the topics just to show how well-rounded this person is. All right. The first one is on ethics and the essential role for the ethical code in working with children with autism. The next one is a brief overview of within subject designs and experimental designs logic for individuals with autism. Okay. He gets into the five horsemen of the modern world, climate, food, water, disease, and obesity. Then he does effects of delay and probability combination. This is super cool, and I can't wait to ask about it. Then he does some on cocaine. He does other ones on smoking. He does some on baseball. Um, He has other articles on the proposed process for risk mitigation during the COVID pandemic. Then he also has an article. I'm just like pulling them out. I also printed them out. This was really cool. This one was more specific about the cocaine. Cocaine use disorder comprehensive examination of money, cocaine, and health outcomes using gains and losses at multiple magnitudes. This shit is cool and I'm super into it. So, and that's not everything on his Dropbox. We'll put as many articles as we can in the show notes with this person's permission. But before we get going, hopefully that built the MO and now Casey's going to make the introduction to tell you who this special guest is.
0: Yes, we are so excited. All of our students um, have a lot of problems wrapping their head around experimental design and the um, experimental analysis of behavior side of ABA. So he this guy makes it so real raw and relatable, which is why he's on the podcast today. David Cox, he is here. He is a principal analyst in behavioral science and analytics in the Department of Data Science at Florida Blue. He completed a postdoc in behavioral economics at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. A PhD in behavior analysis at the University of Florida, a master's in science in bioethics at Union Graduate College, and a BS. What in is psychology, bioethics? Wow! We'll find out at Arizona yep. State University. David is a BCBA D. That's a big deal, and has worked with children, adolescents, and adults with a range of diagnoses spanning autism spectrum disorders, developmental disabilities, depression. Obsessive-compulsive disorder, schizophrenia, obesity, and substance abuse misuse. We told you he was well-rounded. Wow! His research interests lie in quantitative and computational analysis of choice, verbal behavior, behavioral health, and ethical behavior. His current research combines behavioral science and machine learning to scale behavioral health interventions, which I did see him talk at the BALC conference. His Ignite thing was awesome. In his spare time, of which I don't understand how he could absolutely have any of that, Um, you can find him on long runs, hanging with his wife, who I'm sure is a gem, and watching and playing baseball. Welcome to the show, David.
2: Thanks for having me. I don't think I've received a nicer introduction in my entire life. That was amazing.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we like to pump people up and make them live up to their bio. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: Show starts. A a tough hour in front of me here. It's gonna be fun.
1: But before we get started, I just want to go over the behavioral principles we will cover today. Now, I'm sure there will be a lot more, but the robot is back for season two. Behavioral principles we are going to go over. Experimental analysis of behavior, also known as EAB, applied research, ethics, research designs, reinforcement schedules, matching law, Skinner and the lab. We will also be covering, I'm assuming, uh, MOs and value-altering motivating operations, as I was reading in an article, depending on where this conversation goes. He's so well-rounded that I'm not really sure which behavioral principles we'll cover because we probably could talk about anything, and he's done behavioral research on it. So let's get started. I'm super excited and have so many questions for you.
2: I'm ready.
0: All right, David. So can you first back us up and tell us how you got into the field like walk us a little bit through your, your track. Yeah, yeah, how did I get here today? Yeah, I'd yeah. love to know because I can want to do that same thing.
2: <laughs> um, sure, it's a winding. No, it's all pretty straightforward. Um, so I got started during my undergraduate. Um, I was actually working at a UPS store, packing things, but I was interested in going to medical school. And so I was trying to find a job, any job in the clinical realm to help my resume out. Um, and there was an ad for a direct therapist for working with individuals with autism. Um, so I signed up, had no clue what it was, um, got started working one-on-one with children, primarily EIBI stuff. Um, that was down in Arizona and Phoenix. Um, after that, um, I moved to Colorado and was still interested in med school, but was working in an interdisciplinary clinic. And it was during that time uh, that I got started in that master's in bioethics program. Uh, similarly, it was a topic I was fascinated with, uh, but it also seemed like it would help my resume for med school. And it was during that time I was working at an interdisciplinary clinic and I found behavior analysis. There was a BCBA that wow, came wow,
0: it's in. Yeah, nods it's, comes down. <laughs> I, like
2: this is what I do for a living. And I was like, wait, what? This is, yeah. this is a thing. Um, yeah, I was hooked immediately, uh, switched course. Um, I, did, I finished up my master's and got a, a certificate in, uh, behavior analysis from university of North Texas. So I could get my BCBA, um, thought I was going completely clinical, continued to work in autism and DD for a few years, moved out to California. um, And it was there I was working with severe or difficult to treat clients. um, And I got really interested in how do we actually measure reinforcers and preference and use that clinically. Um, That launched me into research, quantitative analyses, like how can we precisely quantify a reinforcer value. Um, That led me to University of Florida, where I wanted to get more experience in the quantitative analyses of behavior, and expand out a little bit into behavioral health more broadly. Um, so I worked with Jesse Dallery down there doing that. Um, towards the end of my PhD, uh, interested in academia, wanted to keep playing around in this quantitative realm, uh, but also expand behavior my behavior analytics skills elsewhere. Uh, found the program at Johns Hopkins, which was focused primarily on behavioral economics but within substance abuse. Uh, so that's where I did a lot of that work. Uh, all sorts of fun human-operant stuff, um, some more purchase task-related demand analyses and things like that. Uh, that also—that's also where I got into machine learning, uh, and then that kind of led me to my current gig. Um, so it seems kind of winding. But really no, it's all fine. it's fine. It's and,
0: actually just a nice circle I drew. Oh, yeah, um, there it is. Yeah, right. like a flow chart that I drew so I know every step of your career um, that yeah. I will share <laughs> as a diagram.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. And, you know, I'll, I'll throw it out there. Like, it, it's kind of a bunch of random stuff. But through it, through it all, uh, I've kind of taken Skinner's classic quote to heart, where it's just, if you find something interesting, uh, drop everything and follow it. Um, and so I've just continued to do that throughout my career. And uh, it's amazing, also, how far the basic principles of behavior analysis can take you. Um, you really can get into a lot of different domains. Uh, I don't, I don't know if I'd say easily, but successfully. Oh, we know. Or,
1: oh, we know. Yeah. It, that's because I mean, that's the thing that I find absolutely fascinating, and mm-hmm. kind of what we try to do on the podcast here is realize that behavior is everywhere. Yeah. Literally, you could apply it to any. Sometimes, I do feel like I have a little bit of a superpower. Because I'll look at something uh, and I'll be able to say, I mean, obviously they need that. I mean, I don't want to be that BCBA asshole, you know, who's saying I know everything. It's not that. But I just, like, anything comes up. Like a family friend who is opening a pediatric dentist um, office the other day came over and he's like, yeah, so it's difficult with some kids, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, you need a room that you have someone in there pairing with the kids, like, before they even come in. Like, you let the kid kind of do a little bit of a preference assessment, choose which toy they want to bring back with them, you know? And it's just like these little things. I mean, if you're doing business, you understand MOs, and it's just fascinating because you could apply it to so many areas of life.
2: Oh, yeah, definitely.
1: I love it. Yeah. So, I will, so how did that I
2: will, conversation turn out with the dentist? Did he hire yeah, you? Yeah, what happened?
1: <laughs> no, so he was like, can I hire you? Like, or would you want to open something next door? I was like, all right, I'm like in a point in my life that I'm working on this thing called boundaries. And <laughs> I mean, because to me, it was – so obvious so they get a lot of um, kids who have special needs right who right. come in there and dentist is a I mean for, even for kids without special needs dentist is a scary place right and so I'm like there needs to be major pairing going on here like every dentist appointment should start with some major pairing and end with some major pairing yeah. and he was like that's so smart blah 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 and then he asked if I would come be the person to do it and I'm like I could help you find someone to do it. I actually think it's a great idea. I mean, also you should get in touch with some ABA clinics and help, you know, work together with them to find different people because they could help make dentists going to the dentists programs. But yeah. I just it was just the most recent thing that I ran into. I mean, I use ABA in every single thing I do. Yeah. But I just thought it was interesting.
2: Oh yeah, and I'll I'll take this moment too to plug the local researcher at the university who probably would love the opportunity to get involved and help that dentist too. Oh um, yeah, yeah, yeah. People can always reach out and get free labor labor from their local researcher.
0: Oh no way.
2: Yeah, yeah, because we're we're often looking for context that we can actually collect data and run research studies in. Um, Do you like so this if,
1: dentist idea?
2: I think it's pretty cool. I don't know if I'm the person for the gig, but I think there are uh, I think there are a lot of researchers that would be interested in in working in that domain and they often have grad students too right that are working towards degree or undergrads that are looking for applied experience that work for cheap or free um a lot, a lot of good stuff can be done that's
1: yeah great plug i love that the yeah. thing is i want to do those type of things always but i realize that i can't do everything yeah that's kind of where i'm getting well i kind of think i can and then i realize i'm like like having a panic attack doing 300 things <laughs> but that's a really good thing to know so yeah. I'll tell this dentist. Amazing. So I
0: will, I, I will say this as that um, as what David was saying before that is he um, put in one of his emails to us. Um, we we're kind of like throwing back and forth. Like, where is this episode going to go? It could go in many million different directions. We could talk about, you know, the ethics book he wrote. We could talk about all his research. Like, what do we want to focus on a little bit? And we're going to, you know, play around with this, but he said, and I just love this, because I meet with a lot of women every morning, and they're super into um, reading research articles and breaking them down, and we you know, want everyone to be able to, because clinicians need to be able to use these resources, not just Cooper, right? you got to be able to use these amazing resources to actually ap- ap- apply in your, um, your practice. So uh, he said, even if someone has started an ASD, there are all sorts of options out there. Although I started by working as a direct therapist for children with ASD, I've dabbled in all sorts of areas. see bio below, which we read before, which took probably 45 minutes. Um, I've mainly been able to do that because EAB, that's Experimental Analysis of Behavior, guys, is everywhere. If people have a solid foundation in the principles of behavior analysis, which is what we hope to make everyone have, um, and are willing to collaborate with others, this is my favorite part of that collaborate with others, they can probably do whatever they're into. And that's not to say with not a lot of hard work, but it can be done. So,
1: Wait, are you saying that EAB could be done with more than just a lab and a rat? (gasps) (laughs)
2: Gas. Yeah, yeah. Oh, without a doubt. And I think the the future of EAB really is human-operant research. Um, If you look at like the funding for basic science, A lot of it is not going to researchers that are just playing around with basic behavioral principles. You have to tie in neuroscience or drugs or something else. And so if you look at like pure, I don't know if I'd say it that way actually, but if you look at EAB research, um, I think the next domain as funding dwindles for the animals is to shift over human operant studies. Um, We know that things get funky when we add verbal behavior to the mix uh, and a lot of undergraduates are cheap or free. I think that's a that's an area, for
0: sure. Yeah, adding that, especially, like, high-level verbal um, behavior repertoires. Things oh, get yeah. A little yeah, bit. it
2: gets messy quick, which is fun.
0: So, well, guys, yeah. if you're listening out there and you are studying for your boards or whatever, maybe operant is learned behavior, right? So when he's talking about this human operant, it's that basically it's just everything that you do over your lifetime that you've learned to do, right? And so um, I just want to throw that out there as a little – Behavioral principle. I cannot do the robot voice clearly. Behavioral breakdown. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So now you are, like you said, at Johns Hopkins, right? No, he's not.
1: He just moved. That's yeah, just
0: moved. oh, that's right.
2: Yeah, like three weeks ago. I think when we started, I was still at Hopkins.
0: But you were. Yeah, okay. I shifted. So where are you now?
2: Yes, yeah, so I'm in Jacksonville um, at Guidewell slash Florida Blue Cross Blue Shield. Um, so I'm in the uh, research department. Um, called Behavioral Science and Analytics, and we're within in the Department of Data Science. So essentially what I'm doing here is we know that there are all these things that we can do to try to shift people to engage in healthy behavior, um, increased physical activity, better diet, adhering to medication, stuff like that. Um, and so we're taking all we know about behavioral science and then all we know about like machine learning and advanced quantitative and computational analyses, trying to create individualized interventions for people to make the state of Florida a little bit healthier.
1: So is that, so would a a company like Blue Cross Blue Shield hire you and say, hey, we'd like to keep our people that we insure healthier. It would also save us a lot of money. Is that kind of their MO? Yeah, exactly. So what's
2: really cool is like, oh, maybe five or seven years ago, a lot of health insurance industries shifted from a fee for service model to a value-based model. And so in the fee-for-service model, I'm really interested in reducing the number of claims I pay, right? Mm-hmm. So physicians, and people bill for things, and I want to reduce costs there. That's how I make money. But in the shift to the value-based model, essentially what a lot of insurance companies realized was that, is that by engaging in preventive healthcare strategies, we can improve the health of our members and that reduce costs. So it's more focused on getting value out of healthy living and everybody wins. It's cheaper uh, for everybody.
1: So when you look for a job like this, let's say, this is just also because I think one of the most common questions I get from students or people in the field is, yeah, am I um, am I pigeonholed into ASD forever? And you know I say no, like look at look at behavior. It's everywhere. you could do anything. But then I do have a problem following up with that when they say like, so what do I look up? You know? Yeah. Um. So I'm assuming, like, I, that's what I want to know. I'm not. Yeah. Oh, like, how actually. did I get
2: this job? Yeah. Like I'm saying, like,
1: what are you looking for when you find something like this?
2: Sure, that's a great question. So in my specific job search, and this may or may not be applicable to, applicable to everybody, uh, but in my specific job search, I was looking for something that allowed me to play around with behavior science or behavioral science because that's kind of a more popular term that'll hit a lot of job ads, um, mm-hmm. behavioral economics, and then also the, that machine learning piece. Cause I also do that. Um, and so within that job search that, that dwindles things down. Um, but I, I would, if I were to throw out like a general strategy for people, I would, I would start by trying to, like getting away from titles and like what you assume to be your skill set. And think about, like, what is the environment I want to work in? Like, how do I want to help people? Or what change do I want to see in the world? And then you go find that job. And then you look at the job description and you match your skills to it. You go, oh, yeah, I, I can do these things. And then you just write about changing human behavior toward whatever the job description aligns with. So, yeah. for example, like in my application thing here, I didn't write anything about um, like functional analyses or preference assessments or things like that. But I talk about understanding why people engage in healthy behavior. And that makes sense to just about everybody. Um, so you can just frame it to the job description. And... That's
1: a great I mean, advice. It's so interesting because, for example, I love Dan Ariely. I like listening yeah. to a lot of his oh, stuff. Yeah, nice. I mean, I also reached out to him. That would be like a dream to have him on the podcast. Um, and... You know, I listened to this one TED Talk he did. It was about, you know, solving this problem. So he does the behavioral economics. I don't know. I think Mm -hmm. I told you about him, Casey. And he Mm -hmm. did, um, someone called him in to do something about uh, pharmacies. Were wanting their uh, consumers to switch over to generics, I think. But they had to physically call in to have them Like, the the patient would have to call and say, oh, I want it to be generic. Now, the pharmacy saves a lot of money when they sell generic. And so he goes in and looks at this problem. He's not using any of these ABA words, right? He's not saying, like, response effort or there's no MO or, you know, there's, you know, no intervention in place. Yeah. 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 But what he's saying exactly could be translated into ABA lingo. And so... And I don't have the exact thing he said on, cause I listened to it a while ago, but I think that's where these opportunities do come in. Like if you go work some, I remember we had Dr. Maggie Pavote on the podcast. She told us the same oh, thing. She's good. like, I was in trapeze school and I said, Hey, I could get people to do this with a lot more accuracy. I'm going to show you guys sure. um, how to use Tag teaching. Yeah. 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 So I think that's pretty oh, cool. that's amazing.
2: Yeah. 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 And I think that's a great, one of my favorite articles um of all time as skinner's uh operant analysis of psychological terms or something like that i don't think i have the title right but it was essentially what he did i think it was published in the 40s maybe maybe the 50s i don't know Um, but he went through jargon in psychology and essentially highlighted here's how you can say this in a behavior analytic way Um, i remember reading that when i first got interested in behavior analysis and just thinking like oh yeah it is everywhere and and we shouldn't be afraid to go interact with other disciplines or read other journal articles, um, because if it's all behavior, we should be able to to spin it into behavioral principles. We should that should be in our repertoire. I,
0: I love, love that. that. Yeah. Oh my God, Jinx. Um, Hashtag but-
1: conceptually systematic.
0: Yeah. So I was. Um- <laughs> palms up. I uh, was talking with some uh, ladies earlier, sharing a few of your articles. And um, it's interesting because in our study collective, we've actually had people sign up um, that are not even going for their BCBA, that are in other fields like counseling, um, that want to just be able to learn, teachers that just want to learn about the ABA techniques um, in a way that we break it down, that they actually would get it, right? Because they're like, They're using all this jargon. I don't understand it. I'd rather like, you know, so, but I did share your article um, from, which actually was public or accepted on my birthday, June 27th, 2016. um, If it was, it's a brief overview of within subject experimental design logic for individuals AST. Oh yeah. Yeah. And uh, I I read that and I shared it with them because they are not, you know, in the field and um, for them to understand you just did such an amazing job kind of breaking apart that group uh you know group design versus the within subject and what that looks like in our field um and my only question for you was why did you leave out changing criterion <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh man i don't know so to be, <laughs> be fully yeah, transparent i suppose so i originally wrote that article back in i think 2013 2014 okay. yeah um it got accepted in, like late 2014 and then published 2 years later whatever um, mm-hmm. I don't think I've looked at that article in years.
0: Um, <laughs> oh, you're that, that cool that you don't even look like, at your articles? I'd be like, yeah, yeah. this is the one I published and I'm hanging it on my yeah, yeah. face.
2: If, if I remember correctly, though, I think at that time, so I'm a big fan of trying to reach other audiences. Yeah, yeah. And usually you have to start with like, what do they know? So people know group design. So like, so, how, so you have to set up, I, you have to let them know, I, I speak your language and here's how what I'm talking about is similar and different. Um changing criterion designs are they add a level of complexity, comes into, like shaping and like step size and all that good stuff. Yeah. Um, I so probably was just trying to keep it basic for that audience. But
0: no, I loved it. And the thing that I loved yeah. that I've like never really thought about is that um compared to within subject designs, like um actually group designs are better at demonstrating external validity, right?
2: Yeah. Oh yeah, and yeah, definitely.
0: I was like, ah, oh, like yeah. I always try to explain to my students like how, you know external validity can be demonstrated in our studies. And um, and it is hard sometimes. And I remember in my master's program trying to write about, you know, how great the external validity was. And it was like, well, it was one student in one classroom for the entire study. So it's, it was shitty. Like yeah. there is no.
2: <laughs> yeah, low, low. Um, but, but meaningful for that student. And I think that's so the,
0: significant, baby. Yeah,
2: exactly. And that's yeah. what I think the, the research enterprise is about is it's not about like group design or single subject design is better. It's what is my question that I'm trying to answer? And then what are the the practical parameters I'm working within? And then how can I create the best way to get the best evidence possible and knowing nothing's perfect. And you use the example
0: of like, sorry Leah, I just have to- No, you're doing great. Fire this in real quick. You use the example of um, what's socially significant, which we know in ABA is like, what is like a, a great change to an acceptable level for clients, for their families, like that's gonna make a big difference in their life, right? Um, Versus this like uh, statistical significance. So you said in this uh, article, like, all right, you have a kid, he hits his head a hundred times per hour, right? Like a severe head hitting with a standard deviation of 10 strikes to the head. So you put an intervention in place, right? And it goes down to 50 times per hour with a standard deviation of five. And in statistical um, significance, that would be really effective.
2: Oh, yeah. You drop so much attention from researchers around the world. That'd be huge. Huge. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And from our our standpoint, dude, he's still hitting his head against the wall friggin' 50 yeah. times. That's not socially significant. Yeah, right.
2: Yeah, I exactly.
0: love that. I was just so passionate when I read that. I'm like, yes, yeah.
2: yes. You know, <laughs> yes. No, no. actually, that's,
1: that's, that's so interesting because apparently, I think today in the news something came out that there's a new drug they're looking at for COVID, did anyone see that?
2: Yeah, it was, I'll let you tell the story first, but I did read- I don't know uh, the exact story, so maybe it, of...
1: if you know what it is, and they were saying like, um, or something, it was like, it's. I'm gonna say the number is so wrong, but it was like, it's working for 11% of people, and before it was working for 8% of people. My sister's like, that sucks, why are they bragging about this? That's so low, or something. And I'm uh-huh. probably using the complete wrong numbers, and in my head at first, I was like, that is kind of low. But then I was thinking, but when we're talking about large numbers and, you know, statistically, that's probably a big difference. And I, I know, and mm. please, no one take that at actual face value. I completely, I just remember it literally being like 3% yeah, yeah. off. Mm.
2: Um, and- yeah, but I, and I think you raise a really interesting thing too, because we often, sometimes we see group designs and stats and we write it off and we're like, man, social significance is more important. But there are situations where a statistical significant is extremely socially important. So in this example here, a difference between 8 and 11% uh, multiplied by hundreds of thousands of lives, that's a lot of people's lives that are saved. So I think that's another thing to highlight is that it really is that social significance. And and how we measure that or talk about differences between interventions is um, unique, but it's that what matters to human lives, that's what behavior analysis is about, eh?
0: That's right. Behavior change, changing lives, improving uh, everyone's life, including not just the, you know, client, but their family and everyone right. else around them. I love that article. I was just like, it's it, the reason I loved it was because it was so um, straightforwardly written that oh. I feel like it's going to be the best one to share with our new students. Uh, to, it's, I'm going to add it to our outline. They have to read this before our experimental design class. Um, because it just, it really does make, you know, it it highlights so many important points about visual inspection and functional control and how to look at that. Um, So kudos, David, that was a great article. Thank you.
2: Appreciate that.
0: All right. Let's get into one of the articles we've also been reading is I need you to really break down to me. Okay. Okay? And for our listeners. Okay. So we read uh, one of your articles on the, um, delay and probability discounting Uh, on the cocaine use and i understand it in a way but i still like i want to just pick your brain and if you could just kind of like explain the abstract i like understood
1: it and then it got a little further in and i'm like oh my god there's so many other variables involved (laughs) uh oh my god (laughs) Um, okay. Now, we're not You're only like, talking about on? delayed reinforcement. On this, we're not talking about delayed punishment, and now we're talking about the magnitude of the punishment used, and now we're talking about this. And I was like, just when I thought I was. So, can you tell us first of all what delayed um, delayed discounting is?
2: Yeah, for sure. So I'll go. I'll go like high-level description of what these things are and what this paper was about and why I think it's, why I think it's important. And then maybe you can get crazy yeah. after that. Yeah. Um, so delayed discounting is the basic idea uh, that as the delay from my behavior to the delivery of the reinforcer increases, the ability for that reinforcer to actually change my behavior decreases which kind of makes sense. Like if I do something now and I get $1,000 immediately, that $1,000 is very meaningful. That's probably going to change in my behavior a lot. Um, but if I do something now and then the $1,000 that's contingent, directly linked to that reinforcer, is delayed by 10 years, that $10,000 doesn't really have much meaning to me because all sorts it's of things... An ab-
1: it's an abolishing operation. Exactly,
2: yeah. So, so, and this kind of gets into the quantitative analysis of behavior and what we're really after there is how can I manipulate like the delay to the reinforcer? And as I do that, how does it change the impact on my behavior? And we can actually precisely quantify that, get this nice little curve. We can make some really cool predictions. Um, That's kind of what delayed discounting is about. How does the increasing or decreasing the delay to a reinforcer influence how much it impacts my behavior?
0: So if you think about, um, with kids, like for a lot of our audience, like they're working with kids with autism and the, and me, we always talk about the immediacy of the reinforcement zero to yeah. three seconds, like really important, um, yeah. for them to know that you're actually reinforcing that behavior that you wanted to see and not like mm. the second behavior they did that was like touching their butthole or something like, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, so you're like, <laughs> yeah, oh, I exactly. really wanted to see your, your hands in your lap. Right. And like yeah, reinforcing yeah. right after. So when we get into this and I'm sure you're working with like some like higher executive functioning participants. Right. Mm-hmm. So this is whole thing of this delayed reinforcement, d- delayed discounting.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And there's even some, I think some really interesting research that the audience probably knows about is like that, that eight second rule, right, or whatever, like you got to get the token or the M&M within eight seconds or yeah. it doesn't matter. Same, same basic idea, Delayed mm-hmm. to reinforce the delivery matters. Um, we can do that same thing with punishers. So that's all the loss stuff that's in that experiment. Are in that paper. Um, oftentimes in discounting research, we talk about gains and losses because we don't necessarily conduct a, a pure reinforcer or punisher assessment. So we're careful with our language. Um, probability is the same basic idea. So if every time a behavior- I, that was my
1: next question for you, oh, probability nice. discounting. Yeah, I, get, that. I was like, I was like, I'm getting this paper. Mm-hmm. I get this whole delay discounting thing, and then probability discounting came in, and I was like
2: what is this guy talking about?
1: <laughs> no, and it's well-written, but I think also, like, my AHD kicks in in between. You see, I have to, like, switch colors, like, 100 times to pay attention. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, yeah. But, yeah. No, and,
2: and probability is really tricky, generally. It's exactly are horrible horrible probability. So, but the basic idea, uh, it's a, a random ratio schedule. You can think about it like a fixed ratio schedule, right? So, FR1, the reinforcer follows every behavior. 100% of the time, you... Contact a reinforcer after you behave. Uh, an FR2 would be like a 50% probability, right? Because one out of two times a behavior actually contacts a reinforcer. And then you can create all sorts of probabilities, like 10% probability would be like an FR10, right? Every about every tenth response or whatever. Um, now random ratio schedules are slightly different than fixed ratio schedules, and your audience can dive into that crazy literature if they want to, but that's the basic idea of pr- a probabilistic schedule. And just like as I increase delay and that decreases reinforcer value, if I decrease the probability so that FR gets leaner, that's also going to have less of an impact on my behavior. Um, so the value of that reinforcer, the ability for that reinforcer to change behavior decreases as it becomes less certain as so we get go from a hundred percent down to like 1%.
0: Is that like a little bit of ratio strain?
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so oftentimes people, there are a bunch of different ways to measure The precise nature of how probability or probabilistic reinforcers uh change in their influence of behavior and one of them is to just draw it out until you see behavior stop completely or or what Mm -hmm. have you um What, what
1: what i thought was really interesting what you said in here is and and this just um this just shows how and just for everyone listening how something could lose its value with this delay is People would rather take $80 now than a hundred dollars in like a month or two months or whatever it was. I don't, I don't know the exact amount, but that just shows how value decreases as how time is a variable, which is serving as an abolishing operation that people are like, I don't care about it as much. And especially, so can you give us a summary, a little bit of the findings in this paper? Like, what yeah, did you find definitely. with people who are cocaine users? Was sure. their discounting different? I have a quick question
0: before this. How do you get cocaine users to be participants? I'm, conf- I, I just uh, want to sure. wrap my head around that.
2: So this study was completed in Baltimore, Maryland, and so flyers were posted You could just yeah. go downtown. You could just go
1: downtown.
2: I don't want to say that, but we drove. No, um, yeah, you, you posted <laughs> flyers, and then they showed up to the hospital, but it wasn't. Um, you know there are there are more challenging populations to recruit, and there are easier populations to recruit. Um, did you co- say
1: free cocaine? What did you say?
2: <laughs> no, not this study. There have been some studies up there where where they actually can work for cocaine, um, but uh, for this study, they were paid with money to come in and and complete a bunch of stuff.
1: To buy cocaine? <laughs> I was just going to say. <laughs> yeah, I
2: mean whatever they do with their money is whatever they do with their money. We have we have no. It's a
0: free country. <laughs> Alright, that's all. I just had yeah, to get yeah. that out. I was like, I Yeah, yeah right. no worries.
2: Tell us yeah, your findings. So, um, so, delay probability discounting, you can have gains and losses, right? Reinforcers, punishers. Um, what's also unique is that money's cool, but uh, there are all sorts of reinforcers in life. And we can actually talk about cocaine outcomes. Cocaine is a reinforcer. We can talk very loosely about, like, health as an outcome, and there are all sorts of ways we can do that, and it gets a little funky. We can talk about food, whatever. Um so if you think of like a general health context, right? So let's say smoking's a really easy example. So I have this moment of choice, I can choose to smoke a cigarette or abstain. Mm-hmm. The choice to smoke a cigarette is gonna involve immediate access, to nicotine, as well as delayed probabilistic negative impact to my health. Yep. If I choose to abstain, there's gonna be an immediate uh withdrawal or aversive state uh might be a potential punisher if i play it right as well as negative punishment
1: probably right yeah yeah
2: exactly um and as well as that abstaining option has that delayed but positive impact to health so when we think about a typical choice healthy choice scenario it involves this interaction between delay probability gains losses cocaine or nicotine. Uh, And maybe money if I'm in a contingency management program, uh, which you can talk about later as well. So the point of the study was to say, all right, we know these real-world situations involve this complex interaction of all of this stuff. So if I want to understand the choice to take a line of Coke or not, I need to understand decision-making with all these variables and how they all kind of fit together. So then in this study, we just assessed essentially delay and probability discounting across all those outcomes gains and losses to try to see what does that look like in cocaine users and how does it differ in non uh, non users or people with no lifetime reported lifetime use of cocaine um, and the main study or the main findings uh, essentially were that uh, cocaine users tend to discount delayed outcomes, more than control groups. Um, loosely speaking, that means they're more impulsive, right? They prefer that smaller sooner award compared to a larger later, the control group, the healthy control, they can wait longer to to get money or health outcomes or whatever. Um, Also,
1: wouldn't there be like the competing, I mean, that MO, that, you know, that background information about someone, if there is addiction involved, let's say mm -hmm. some kind of, you know, Neurological dependency or biological and not neurological. I mean either way, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm saying, so to them, you know, when you watch like when you see someone who has a drug addiction and it's, you know, anything to get heroin in that moment, right? Yeah. Like I don't care that I'm ruining everything for my family right now. I don't care that I just stole my mom's wedding ring to do it because mm-hmm. there's also that MO. So that's, I guess I'm assuming that's what you were looking at to see, like based yep. on these people's MO versus, like, so for them, it's not this idea of thinking about these future things such as, Oh, well that'd make more money, which I could put into investments and I could do this and that mm-hmm. this is about the now I need it now.
2: Right. Exactly. So we all have this kind of, uh, what you highlighted is this in- intuitive nature of what we think about when we think about addiction and, and behavior and so what we're trying to do is capture that quantitatively within this realm of reinforcers and reinforcer value and then there's this whole approach called the reinforcer pathology approach which essentially um, we can get into if you're feeling crazy but the idea is that
1: I'm feeling crazy yeah
2: (laughs) so if you look at uh, all sorts of what might be considered uh, challenging or problematic health behaviors so drug addiction um, you look at things like obesity, uh, problematic gambling, which can do some interesting. Things. Look at a bunch of these different uh, challenging health behaviors. They all tend to have this steeper, delayed discounting, right? So they're more more impulsive, that smaller sooner reward compared to control groups. And you see that repeatedly across all these groups that we consider impulsive, that are thinking about the now. Um, and so the idea is that maybe there's this this reinforcer pathology that's different, and that's what we should target for change. There's technically a demand component to that, too, this idea of as I increase the amount you have to work for a reinforcer, um, eventually you stop. Um, And it turns out that people with the same pattern of unhealthy behavior, they tend to drop off more quickly, or they have different patterns that we see in their behavior compared to healthy controls. So it's this combination of demand and discounting that create this that reliably occur uh, in this these unhealthy populations compared to healthy controls that were we seem to be onto something, but we don't know what to do with it.
1: <laughs> Wait, so I say- might be I might be applying this wrong, but I'm trying to apply this really amazing detailed study you did. But so what you said, you said that um, people in that moment, right? They can either choose to um, to smoke the cigarette then right and have that negative reinforcement in that moment right like removal Mm -hmm. of whatever aversive state they're in and it gives them relief or they decide to abstain from taking the cigarette smoking the cigarette and it would i mean i don't know i think maybe we could call it negative punishment like taking away something they like I don't know, maybe either way, but a different schedule. Well, that's something added.
0: Be- like they're going through withdrawals, right? So this like yeah. pain is added and like they're in a now a different state of aversiveness. <laughs> like okay, so like- either way,
1: what whatever it is, would this be kind of like a, con- and I might be, you could say, no, Liat, is it a concurrent schedule, like matching law 100%. in terms of behavior, behavior through exactly. reinforcement flows? Like, yep. well, you know what, dude? screw that. Like right now, this is way more reinforcing to me than this idea of being reinforced way later. So I'm going to choose to do this.
2: Yeah, exactly. No, that's perfect. So we, all this stuff that I play around in is that choice paradigm, concurrent schedules. You have two, three, four different behaviors that range from healthy to unhealthy. How can I predict which one of those levers you pull? And I mentioned before that contingency management paradigm. So think about that same smoking situation where you're like, "Screw it, ah, this is too aversive. I'm just going to smoke the cigarette now." Well, what if I say, "But if you don't smoke, I'll give you a hundred dollars later today." And then people go, "Oh, all right, I can, I can hold off smoking till the end of today by if I if by not smoking I get a hundred dollars." And so that's kind of this idea of. What we're often after in this choice paradigm. So, if smoking means more to me now and I start adding reinforcers onto that healthy option, how much do I have to add before you switch over and engage in healthy behavior?
1: I and quantitatively, how many days can I say, like, okay, I'll give you $100 exactly. a day tonight, or can I give you $100 tomorrow? or I'll give you a hundred dollars exactly. next week if you don't smoke it yeah. right now, or I'll give you a hundred dollars in a year. And you're like, fuck that shit. Exactly, yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. so you're working in delayed discounting. And then there's a probabilistic component too, right? So if I say, I'll give you a hundred dollars at the end of today, if you don't smoke, you can say, yeah, that's fine. But in 30 minutes, are you gonna smoke? In 60 minutes? Like it's, it's a little uncertain too, whether or not you'll smoke later in that gap in between. So we have to account for that. And then if you think like scaling this intervention, right? So what's interesting about a lot of the work we do with kids with autism is we have like 20, 30 hours a week where I get to control contingencies. When we start looking at verbally competent adults at population level, impossible. So now I have to say, all right, I know that if I give you $100 every day for not smoking, no one's going to smoke, but I can't scale that to populations too expensive. So then you have to start getting into how can I balance the money that I'm willing to spend or the other types of reinforcers I can load up? How do you play this economic game to... Have the maximum impact with the, without breaking the bank. It's fun. Wait. So, is, is
1: and just out of interest, when you get funding, these grants and stuff. Let's say you get a grant at John Hopkins when you're working there, right? And they give mm-hmm. you, I don't know, a million dollars. Is that also money you could use for the research?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, how those grants usually break down is there's a certain amount that's earmarked for the staff to actually run it you have to pay people to run the study. And then you also build into the budget, the costs of like paying participants, paying for like the, say if I'm giving money within the contingency management program, to actually pay for that stuff for testing. Cocaine. Yep, for playing around with drugs of abuse. Um, like in our, some of the cannabis studies and stuff, we buy weed from the government, um, that costs money. Um, so that's what, when you submit your grant proposal, you write in all of that stuff. You say, this you is buy what I need. weed from the government? I don't personally, but yes, researchers do. Like it's up Trump stash. And... Yeah. Well, <laughs> he's a little bit stingy with his good stuff, so we've gotten elsewhere. But uh, yeah, now there's a like, his a like his medical supplies, like his <laughs> medical <Yeah>. oh. supplies. <laughs> I mean, Baltimore is just down the street from DC, you know.
1: I know. I used to live there. I'm a Terp. I went oh, to Jersey, no, Maryland. No, I, I think I remember you saying that
2: before. Yeah. 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 Before.
1: Have wow, you done okay. any
0: research on um, relapse?
2: Ah, yes and no. So we can similarly think about relapse within this preparation that's probably familiar to a lot of uh, listeners. So I have a baseline period where challenging behavior is occurring, maybe drug abuse or maybe it's self-injurious behavior. I then enter a second phase where I have intervention in place. I put the problematic behavior on extinction or something to reduce it, and I reinforce a healthy alternative behavior. And then... When relapse usually happens, when we think about it with drug abuse, is I've entered this rehab setting or this treatment setting, and then I enter a third phase where all those reinforcers associated with treatment are removed, and then we see what happens. And usually, when that, what relapse and and thinking about it in that way is that challenging behavior comes back. Um, The paradigm I just described is called resurgence. That's the EAB. On the article, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I've studied resurgence in a human-operant lab setting. So people come into the lab, we run them through this task where we have a baseline. I reinforce some behavior, I then reinforce an alternative, and then we see what happens. Um, but I haven't I haven't played around with relapse in an intervention setting.
0: So would that phase be the verification phase?
2: The final setting.
0: So like if you have baseline, right? And they have yeah, like high yeah. levels of drug use and then you implement the intervention and you're saying basically that if like the baseline logic for listeners, like if I do nothing, oh, sure. I predict that they're gonna continue these high levels of drug 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 use. Yeah. And then I implement my independent variable and now I have what we call as affirmation of the consequent, right? Now we're saying sure, that we're sure. affirming our treatment worked. And then when we go back to baseline, if behavior goes back up, right? Back mm-hmm. higher to drug use, We're verifying that our independent variable was in charge of that.
2: Yeah. Yes, you're 100% accurate by the way I described it, but I realized I left out a variable. Tell me. So so usually what happens is in that A phase, we reinforce one behavior. Yep. In the B phase, we reinforce the second behavior. In the C phase, everything's on extinction. So you never actually really do a reversal proper, a proper reversal. So a lot of research on resurgence, they'll run that three phase preparation and then they repeat it. and then that's where you get the verification and replication okay. of the findings.
0: That makes sense. So um, it's
1: almost it's almost like they're doing so let's say fa- phase A baseline, okay, this person um, shoots up sixty times a day, okay with heroin. Then yeah. you have phase B, right? That's intervention and that's you're putting the behavior on extinction. But it seems like you're using a DRA, reinforcing an alternative appropriate behavior, right? Mm-hmm. At the same time. And then it, yeah. it wouldn't be ethical for you to go back to, yeah, um,
2: I'm not phase, give drugs to see what to, happens. to
1: baseline. Yeah. To like just like reinforce and like make sure like they have access to it. Mm-hmm. But you're removing part of the intervention on phase C, let's say, right? Like you're removing that differential reinforce or that. Yeah, that differential reinforcement of alternative behavior, which could mean they might go back to it.
2: Yeah, right? exactly. And so in, like a, in a research setting, like the stuff that I've done, what we're trying to do is model that real-world approach where the individual leaves rehab, kind of cold turkey. Like, you're done on Monday. Go home. Um, and so we want to see, can we essentially get a pattern of behavior that looks like the relapse we see in real life? And then once I can get that, can I mess around with reinforcement schedules in A and B? Can I add things to the, the intervention that reduce the likelihood that the person relapses in C? And so that's what the, a lot of that basic research is at. Can I play with that B phase to decrease the likelihood that you actually relapse in C phase?
0: So like a treatment package kind of thing? Like you're that's what I was going to say. In. Is
1: it like a component analysis after? like? So you did the extinction and the DRA at the same time. That's where I was going, but obviously my ADD, Mm -hmm. I got distracted. Then phase C would be like, you take the DRA part out because now you're seeing, would just the extinction work on its own?
2: Exactly, yep. And there are other ways too. So some people don't go right into extinction in phase C. Maybe they like thin the reinforcement slowly. And then you can- And they could do like a
1: parametric analysis.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then you can see like, as I play with this parametric analysis, like how short or long does it need to be? Um. How big can those steps be? Um, can I run an assessment at the very beginning before all this starts to predict how I need to play with C to reduce the likelihood of relapse? All sorts of great questions. We don't have a great this answer. This is today. so
1: cool. I love this. Okay, yeah, so this is honestly just selfish because on my bucket list, I have that I want to write something for a journal, an ABA before I die. Yeah. Um, can we be in touch with you? Like Casey and I write something oh, about something applied.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Like, I want
1: to do something interesting like dating or yes. um That's like, the cool I just love this applied dating, yeah, like yeah. these apps mm-hmm. or just I don't know. I, I was thinking about the stock market, the way essentially it's it's understanding MOs, like when you're looking to buy something, yeah. you're understanding like, okay, shit, this coronavirus is happening. I better go quickly. Um uh, um, invest in Johnson and Johnson because they make toilet paper or something. So I yeah, don't know. Yeah. I was just thinking like all these things I'd want to do research on, but I don't even know how to write research. So sure. I'm wondering if I could reach out to you.
2: Oh, absolutely. And that and that would go for any of the audience members too. I think, and this also brings up another great, great way to plug the EAB is everywhere thing and the importance of basic principles. Um, because sometimes I think we get stuck thinking about the research designs I read in Java and I let the design shape my experimental question but what we should be doing is exactly what you said is like what's that thing that's interesting out there in the world like response to stock market and then we come up with the question that we want to ask and then we from there we figure out the best design to actually study it um, and we kind of work in the reverse direction but it's and we can do that if we know the principles and we know different experimental, Design like, and things like, but that. for
1: me, it just seems so aversive. Like having to write these long pages with it <laughs> in a certain way—that's the part. But I'm sure you could help That's
2: with it. that. Oh well, yeah, I- and I love that part so.
0: So I know that when I was in my master's program, the reason why I am so obsessed with experimental design and research methods is because I had an amazing professor who took us through a year course where we had to read hundreds of articles, dissect them, uh, comment on others, uh, relate it to the principles of behavior. And what I was trying to tell my students when I was teaching these, we do two classes on experimental design, um, is that if you look at a job article you could immediately just highlight, oh, dependent variable. Yep, I know what that is. I learned that in class, independent variable. I know what that is. I knew what experimental design they're using. I know what that is. Like, it's so many, um, IOA, I know what that is, right? Social significance, applied, it's technological. Boom, got it. Like all the dimensions that you got to pull out of an article. And um, I just love it so much. It's like, it's so passionate to me. and I want our listeners to like, not be so afraid about EAB and just yeah. e- embrace it and be like, no, there's some cool shit out there. Like guys, oh, yeah. articles are, you know, relatable. And if you're confused it's on them- that
1: pecking pigeon, like just because like this pigeon and you can't imagine creating a machine that would allow a, p- a pigeon to peck on certain things. I, I think that's where um, it gets interesting is like, if you're having difficulty dating in your life and you're like, dude, I notice that every single time I say this line to someone on the app, like, I get blocked or something, right? Like there's something going on there. There's some controlling relation. Yeah. And, but so let's say someone listening right now was really fascinated with dementia. I don't know. I just picked a random thing. Like, who would they reach out to? Like, someone who's a researcher like yourself, who would they like? How does someone reach out and be like, hey, I'm super interested in this? Would you be interested in? Is it, is it supervising or is it being like, I mean, what are they asking for?
2: Yeah. Great question. So one thing I'll throw out there um, is Linda LeBlanc had a great article on how to get behavior analysts into other domains. I'm pretty sure it was in Java. Might've been in behavior analysis and practice. I should know this, but I she's don't.
0: amazing by the way, guys, Like oh, she's, she's yeah. unreal. Unreal. Yeah.
2: Um, so within that article, she highlights a bunch of steps for, if you're interested in other stuff, here are some things that you can do. So I definitely recommend the audience listen or reads that because there's a lot of, she's more seasoned in that domain. I think it has a lot of great experience and, um, recommendations that people should follow through with. I think what I'll say that would be in addition to that article maybe is that researchers, uh, love talking about what they do and we so seldom get any feedback on anything that we do, or that people are even reading our articles, um, that most researchers would love to get an email saying, oh my God, I love that you're into psychedelics. How can I help? Um, Or how can I get involved? Or what does that look like? Um, And the researchers have been around enough too, they know exactly how someone at at a specific skill level, um, what the next step is for you. And so then they'd say, Oh, this, is I cool. just
1: learned that because we're doing some, uh, we're starting CEUs and yeah. we are like, okay, like, we'd like to use this article, but like, do you think we could ask this person? Like if we could use it, blah, blah, blah. We're like, Hey, okay, let's, I'm like, let's just try it. I don't know. We'll reach out to them. Yeah. I've never seen such a positive response in my life. They're like, <laughs> Oh my God, I'm so ecstatic. You're using our, um, our article. And I know that you run the behavior business. This is like the most amazing thing ever that you're going to be using this. I'm like you this like big researcher are interested in this young little girl calling herself a behavior bitch. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, they love it. And I, I, yeah. I mean, I think that's cool to share with anyone listening that mm. I think people are really only too happy that all this work they put in something is actually being read. Yeah.
2: Oh yeah, exactly. And the other thing too, is so like, if you think of EAB and research generally, the the goal there is to create generalizable knowledge that people can use um, but we, as a researcher, I can't create this and just throw it out in the wild and expect that people are going to use it. We know that there's a research to practice gap. Yeah. So when somebody out there says, I, especially as like a basic researcher that says, I read your basic article and I'm trying to bring it into an applied setting. That means the world. Cause that's, you know, that's what we're after is having that impact.
0: Well, that is our actual goal for bringing you on is to have all of our listeners really, just dive in and read the articles. Like, I, I mean, today I spent hours just like I, I blocked out some time to read, you know, articles and I feel so like motivated and inspired and um, able to like relate all my knowledge of ABA that from studying and passing the boards to an article that is actually um, published and, you know, I could actually maybe use in, you know, my practice. So, yeah.
2: Oh, that's it's awesome. awesome. Here. Yeah.
0: yeah. And so, like, I'm sharing as much as possible. Um, with our listeners um, the articles that you've sent us, um, like, you know, and I don't just share like the title. I'm like, I share like my notes of like crazy stuff that I write. Like, so they know oh, that cool. like, yeah, like, Hey guys, like I just pulled out in this. I mean, so David did send us an article about uh pigeon, pigeons. Like you got to understand the basic Skinner's box to like really relate all these to the principles. But um, you know, in in a simple, easy way, right? They're putting these pigeons in a box, um, and they're testing um, the sensitivity to this uh, pento which is like a kind of like a morphine, right? Type of drug, yeah. but like just real quick, like the simple thing, right? So the mo was food deprivation, right? If they're in, a, you're you're keeping them in a state of food deprivation, so that they want to peck the thing, right? So we all know that is manipulating the mo, manipulating the environment um the sd which is the discriminative stimulus guys i know if you're out there you're like oh my god that's the same thing yes it is is the key right that they have to hit the behavior is pecking it and then the consequence oh my god they get access to food so now you know that's their reinforcer and it you know creates this like now they went from a uh, abolishing i mean establishing operation in the beginning where they're it's super valuable to peck 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 And then it ends up being more of an abolishing operation where now they're satiated on food, but the way they control the experiment is that they're not satiated. So they will keep (laughs) pecking. but um, just like that little thing. Right. I was so, I just was proud of myself. I'm like, yeah, I get it.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, That's awesome. And the other thing too, I love about that article um, is it, is it, it's a nice highlight of like, so I have this situation where a pigeon pecks for food when they're hungry. What happens if I give a pigeon some drugs before they do that? Mm-hmm. What do we see with behavior? And there's some great plots on there that the readers can dive into or whatnot. Uh, but it, it just shows, I think it's another great example of the complexity of interaction between real world reinforcers and how there's always this, you know, we're a biological system behaving in an environment. It's all, it's all multiple that. outcomes. Everything's going on simultaneously.
0: Biological system and yep, behaving in an environment.
1: Yeah, Totally. Okay, because we're still in COVID week 9,433, <laughs> we I, you wrote a, an article titled A Proposed Process for Risk Mitigation During the COVID-19 Pandemic. And you must yeah. have like, yeah, it was submitted on March 29th, 2020, because we were speaking to you like our initial like pre-interview. I, it was kind of the beginning of the coronavirus. I remember on the phone I was saying, mm-hmm. Oh my God, this is crazy. And like, think about all the MOs, like getting people to stay home, how would we do it? Like we need to like watch the MO so that they don't feel like they need to go to work because, you know, or or create an AO so that they don't go or or make sure they have money or whatever it is. How quickly did you put this article together? And I see you wrote it with uh, Matthew Broadhead and Joshua Plavnik. Yeah. How quickly did you put this together? And can you give us a brief summary?
2: Yeah. So, um, so I think it was Matt, I received a text or an email from Jonathan Tarbox who's the editor for behavior analysis practice saying we're doing this emergency issue on COVID. Um, can't, this was Friday morning, I think at like 6 AM or something like that. Can you get something to us like by the end of the day? (laughs) And so Matt texted me and was like, what do you think? And I was like, end of the day is not possible. Um, so we decided for Sunday night to be, Found out about this Friday morning, set a goal for Sunday night. Um, we kicked around some ideas Friday. We're kind of having a hard time settling on some things. Um, a basic framework for the what ended up in the paper was there. And then he's also uh, – uh, Josh Plavnik works at Michigan State with Matt, and he was talking to Josh, and Josh had similar sentiments to this thing that was brewing between Matt and I. So um, put pen to paper like Friday night. And then essentially from Friday night through Sunday night, one one of us three was in there continuously. So we'd take like two, three-hour shifts. Um, we'd let, e- let each other know, like, I'm out of the document now. Someone else would jump in. We just churned it out. And Wait, does this like, mean you don't sleep? Hours. Oh, sure. no, we did sleep. Um, oh, I was like, did, yeah, is yeah. this
1: like someone's like on watch at all times?
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, so someone started, I think Matt got out of it Friday night at like 10 or 11 p.m., something like that, late at night. Um, I'm an early riser, so I got into it at, like, 4.30 a.m., 5 a.m., and then it just continued all day till again, like, 10 at, 10 at night or so, and then we repeat on Sunday. We hammered it out in, like, 48 hours. It was an intense weekend, uh, but also <laughs> no. kind of a kind That's of a hot.
1: That's hot. <laughs> yeah, so, but what's the summary of this?
2: So the summary of this, and I'll, I'll throw context in here um, – because I know this article has generated some dialogue. Also, Matt, Josh, and I have also come under heat from some people we know for having written the article. So I'll throw some context where it came from and then summarize it, and then um, we can go from there. So the context was that I, uh, I teach uh, several classes, uh, m- master's level, 88 courses for universities around the country. Um, within those conversations with the students, a lot of them are RBTs. Uh, a lot of them were very concerned because they felt that they couldn't voice concern or question about the way their agency was handling the COVID pandemic.
1: Yeah, we know. We get all the messages. We know. We know. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you
2: guys are on Facebook. So you, I'm sure Seattle. I'm not. So I'm like, ah, I don't know. It's like, um. Okay. And, Thousands and think, a
0: day. Thousands a day.
2: Yeah. Thousands so really, is dramatic.
0: Uh, Hundreds. Uh,
2: yeah. Anyway, um. What really got me was there were some RBTs who had lost their job because they questioned. They just asked a question, should we be providing services? They were shown the door. Um, So that was kind of the context that we were going into this with. And within those conversations, some agencies seemed to be taking this, we're shutting everything down right away. Other agencies were like, we're staying open because we're essential. And so the the point that we tried to get across in the article, and you can kind of see from the section headers, is that it seems like either of those extremes are inappropriate. We should look at a client's individual case and try to weigh the risks that are associated with continuing services versus if we were to pull out. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the main premise. Yeah. We then created that decision-making model. Um, at the time, we didn't know much about COVID. We just knew that it was killing a lot of people and it was really seemed really dangerous. Um, so we essentially said, "I we're we're going to say our values are the default." Should be to stop, unless you can prove that there's a reason you should still be in home, um, or you can't switch to telehealth for some reason. Yeah. So that was our 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 position, and and within that too, I I think it's important to note that we also state that we assume that we don't have the right answer. That everyone's going to fall differently on this spectrum of where I'm, where my default position is and where where decisions should be made. But our main idea that we really want to get out there was. Any blanket approach seems crazy. You know, we're behavior yeah. analysts. We individualize. We should make individual
1: decisions. 100%. I love that uh, feedback. If because... it means anything to you, I completely agree with you. That is what I've oh, said thanks. in Return to Things. Yeah, we're always yeah. like, it's individualized.
0: It's case by case. We can't ever say, like, I've got a lot of message being like, is it ethical that my company's still making me go in? Or, blah, 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 what should I do? And I'm like, honestly, like, Mm -hmm. it's case by case. And I don't know, I'm not your company. And if you want to call the ethics board, call the ethics board. John Bailey will respond to you. He's responded to us in like a second. So like, (laughs) Oh, he's um,
2: impressive. I don't know how he does it.
0: He emailed me back within like 24 hours. I'm like, Oh my God, I'm talking to John (laughs) Bailey. Oh my God. (laughs) That's
2: so cool. Yeah. Yeah. The other really unique thing about the situation, I think is that within a Western ethical framework, we're brought up with this idea of, client matters first and foremost. That's where our number one priority. Outside of that, we can expand it maybe to caregivers. Outside of that, larger community, global community, whatever. What's unique about the COVID pandemic is that if we rank those priorities, clients, caregivers, broadening communities, um, what's unique about COVID is we entered this interesting situation where we almost had to flip that. We saw this where we said, oh, shoot, if we all don't, stop thinking about ourselves first we might do tremendous damage to the larger community because it's not just Talk about
1: about delays yeah right delay and Your, probability this, discounting
2: with a shift in value um Ooh, and that's that.
1: the problem like there's yeah. no immediate like oh my god i'm so sick right now that i'm not going to go out that's the yeah problem
2: exactly and it's a it's a different way of of thinking and i think some people some people they dig it and they switch right away and they're like, yeah, I'm not going to put anyone else at risk. Um, other people, they don't agree with that kind of switch. They let us know via feedback that they thought differently. <laughs> um, and and I think again, the important I'm sure thing. Sure, they was said did,
1: it in a nice way.
2: Some did, some didn't. <laughs> um, but I, I, again, I think, which we know in the article, um, this COVID pandemic is unique to all of our histories. Like, there's no right answer right now. Everyone's just trying to do their best. We have no database evidence published journals to tell us what to do right now
0: we're navigating some uncharted waters here and, yeah yeah um, exactly i think the best thing we can do is just support everyone and mm. you know
2: yeah and at the end of the day i think everyone in this field got into it because they care and so mm-hmm. stopping to remember that too like everyone's just trying to do their best there's 99 percent of just trying to do the best maybe there's a few bad apples
0: i'm sure there are but i, I mean you know my husband's an essential employee he works for um aerospace and he's going in to work every day and with no complaint oh. because he's happy he has a job yeah. um luckily for his job though like so I was questioning this for a little while like why are I've had a lot of staff reach out to me for my old job being like I can't believe we're still working and they are still working because they work with the adults right adult population right. and uh uh and I was like well you have a job that's amazing like um, but I, I had to like switch my mindset and be like, listen, Matt goes into work. They've moved every office. He has his own six foot private cubicle. Um, they're not allowed to eat in the cafeteria. There's all these rules. Right. But like when you work one-on-one with a client with autism, there's no way you're not up in their grill. Like you're not oh, right. hand no, over hand, there. like right? helping them in the bathroom, helping them shower, like touching yeah. the stuff that they've touched. Like there's a big difference in that. And I had to switch my mindset of being like, well, you have a job that you should be grateful for versus mm-hmm. like, actually you probably are at way higher risk than my yeah. husband going into like a private office right yeah so, you're in
2: it in it yeah. there yeah. and what's unique about that too is it's not just it's not just about me and that client because maybe maybe both of us already had the virus and we were fine or maybe we're at a low risk population and we're going to survive but the more that I'm out moving around the more likely I am to contract it and then I go get groceries and I touch a banana and then mm-hmm. the 90 year old man walks up behind me and touches that banana and I might have killed that old man. So it's not it's yeah. not just about me and the client. Like it's again thinking about that switch in values of the larger community might have to come first in some situations. And that's
0: and we're not used to that as these no. you know caregivers, yeah. empaths. Like mm. nope, it's so and not, I think it's super
1: interesting just looking at MOs because So, for me, do you know that Leon loves MOs? Have you heard that throughout the episode? No. This is the first (laughs) time you brought them up. Oh, and I love CMOTs. That is like my favorite thing ever. Um, But just, I'm fascinated by um, MOs in general. Like, so for me, as soon as COVID started, it was like, all right, I'm locked in my house. Like, not, I have lupus, scleroderma, uh, everything. Like, my immune system doesn't work. Right. I mean and I was prepping, I had like all this food, this that, whatever it is. But then it took other people longer to catch up. It's like so depending on it seems like the further someone either older or with a compromised immune system is away from you, it's more of it like it's an abolishing operation for you to go, you know, stay lock yourself in your home. Mm-hmm. Right? And so it's like yeah. you see people depending on is it like it really reduces the value of the idea of staying home if you know, if you're a healthy 23 year old or whatever it is. But, and so it's just been really interesting to watch how different people have reacted, how some people are like, some states are like, we don't care, we're going out, blah, 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 right? This is America. And it's like, okay, so you must have no one older in your life or no one who might have a health issue or, so it's just, it's, it's super interesting. Yeah. And the last thing before we end off this episode, even though I have so many questions I could keep asking you,
0: I haven't even looked at my outline. I had like 50 questions. Me neither. We've just been like uh, riffing.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, you wrote one article, which I think is super cool. And I get this question a lot. And I think it would be relate really well to a lot of people who have been furloughed or um, lost their job right now. And I mean, in general, you know, BCBAs find new companies to work for. Where, as Study Notes ABA, we're cranking out lots of BCBAs. So they're looking for jobs after and reach out to us uh, what they and they ask, what should I look for when I'm looking for a new job somewhere? And someone the other day asked me a question. Do you think so I'm looking to apply for jobs? Do you think that I should ask them how they responded to covid and that's how I should decide on jobs? I was like, first of all, my my response was no. I mean, no one knows how to respond to covid. Like (laughs) I wouldn't judge a company completely. on like letting people go because of covid Mm -hmm. because. It's been, but you wrote an article. I might say the title wrong, but it was How to Choose an Ethical Place of Work, something like that. What's, do you know the exact name? Yeah, yeah. You I wrote it, it, it
2: and I should know. Yeah. It's uh, how to identify ethical organizations for employment or something like that.
1: That's exactly it.
2: Oh, nice. Cool. Oh, like I said, it's been a while since I've read some of my articles. So, um, yeah, so so the idea here is that, or what we were kind of after, that one's also with Matt, I think Sean Quigley as well. Um, the, the idea is that there are all sorts of metrics about organizations that exist out there. Um, but we personally believe that ethics also is important and should be a criteria when people are, are making a job selection. Um, but it's really hard to get that information. You can't just like knock on the door and say, like, are you ethical? Because everyone will say, yeah, of course, You follow the code. Um, so that's kind of what that article is about. It's different ways or different strategies of how you might find that information out. Um, in short, there's no great method for doing it. Um, trying to talk with past employees to get a sense of the culture. You know, What does the supervision caseload actually look like? What kind of help or mentorship do you actually get? Um, are there reviews online from parents or something like that might be a good indication? or give you some indication, although we know that Yelp reviews and stuff usually get both ends of the spectrum. Um, Or or I think really where I've had the most success is on interview. When you just kind of go get a feel from, and you're chatting with someone about what is it like to work with the regional manager, manager, the clinical director? Um, What happens if you take a day off of work or you need a week off of work? Um, What happens if you don't meet your billing goals? those kinds of questions I think, uh, can get a little bit at the culture and, and, um,
0: and for the new BCBAs that go out, I know a big question that, um, they all have, um, mm. is what is your onboarding? Like, what is your training? Um, yeah. cause a lot of BCBAs pass the exam, but they may not have had like the best supervision. And so, yeah. um, they're, you know, facing a little bit of imposter syndrome. They want to do the best for their clients. Um, yeah. and I've had a few, you know, interviews that I've done where I'm like, What does your, like, what would my caseload look like right when I start? What is your onboarding? Um, And you, you know, when you put people on the spot like that, like, you can tell if it's like a bullshit answer or like a true Mm -hmm. answer. Like if there's actually policies in place, if they're like, here's task analyses for every um, way to do insurance. Like they show you all their work. Like, I'm like, this is a good place. Like they have their shit together. Um, You can Mm -hmm. tell the difference with that.
2: Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think kind of riffing off that a little bit, asking about what the training and onboarding is for RBTs. Yeah. Um, or other resources cuz i'm only as good as the people that can actually implement those programs um, and if there's turnover and it's high yeah. there every like month or two months um, i'm going to have a hard time being successful in that environment regardless of how well they treat me yeah, um, yeah so asking those questions again the other thing to think about too is so say i live in like rural indiana and there's an agency <laughs> that might be my job <laughs> yeah, you know maybe don't go and asking hard questions cuz that's that's it for me Um, so you also have to balance that, you know, what is, uh, you, you don't want to exclude yourself from a job for asking potentially tough questions. Um, if you know, that's your only option, why not? You can also make change in organizations too. You know, nobody's perfect and nobody has everything together. Um, maybe there's a great position that, um, gives you an opportunity for leadership. and stuff.
0: And I mean, why not while we're at it, plug the amazing ethics book that david cox and jonathan are uh, not jonathan tarbox but i was you yeah. know i know he, he's great. Yeah, yeah yeah matthew broadhead and uh, sean quigley wrote the practical ethics for effective treatment of autism spectrum disorder i mean birch and uh, bailey and birch put out an amazing book that we all read to study for our boards but like that's one thing and it's amazing and they're not rewriting it at all they're actually adding amazing stuff for practical um, applications of our ethics code. That is awesome. And so, um, you know, it might help you with those ethical dilemmas. If you do have a job, like you have to take or whatever it may be, like, how do you go through this behavior change kind of like model or behavior model of what you're going to choose um, in this ethical dilemma that you may be in? Um, and it's, yeah, it's awesome. So
1: yeah.
0: that's, Thanks. that's my plug. We'll for put you. that in yeah, the show
1: notes. We'll put that in the show notes. Our show notes are going to be ridiculous this time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I
1: nice. think we're going to post his whole resume on the show notes. Yeah, All no 17 more. pages of it. Uh, David, pages.
0: this was awesome. I think there was a ton of um, light bulb moments, highlights and just really great conversation had about how experimental analysis of behavior is everywhere and you shouldn't be afraid of it. And research is great. So Thank you so much for um, finally, we made it happen. We got you on and it's our first episode of season two. So we're so excited to have
1: you on here today.
2: Oh, My pleasure. Thanks for having me and congrats on the kickoff to season two.
1: Yeah, Thank baby. You. So guys, you know where to find us. You can find us on Instagram at Behavior Bitches Podcast. You can find us on Facebook at Behavior Bitches Podcast. Or you can find us online at behaviorbitches.com. Leave us a message, contact us, whatever you want. And our Patreon to support us is patreon.com/slash behavior bitches podcast or just behavior bitches. I think behavior bitches. I think so too. <laughs> I think so. We're just so professional. Just try, yeah, we're so professional. Try it out. Try it um, out. See what it gets you. Yeah. Um, so thanks for tuning in, guys. We had a great time. Hope you're all. Having the best day ever, as always, love ya! Mean it! Hey guys, it's Liat here, and I just wanted to take the time for just a single second of your time and tell you about something awesome. As you know, Casey and I are super into this podcast thing going on here and getting it started, and I just wanted to let you know that there's an easy way to get it done, and that is what I'm going to tell you right now about Pretty Easy Podcasts. Thank God we got in touch with the team at Pretty Easy Podcasts. They help you do everything from start to finish. They will get your show up there. They will record episode for you. They will produce it. They will add bleeps in. If you're full of F-bombs like myself, whatever it is that you need, they will do it. When you first said you wanted to start a podcast, I was like, okay, we can do that.
0: We have no idea what we're doing. I never really thought it would get off ground. Until we met Alan at Pretty Easy Podcast, and he put all my fears to rest. He helped us get everything going from all of our audio audio editing and production and our song that we have, which is amazing, by the way. We're allowed to record from our own homes. He helps us with our guests.
1: Um, He caters to our schedule. Uh, Come on, Leah. We are the worst with scheduling. I mean, I know we said we're going to have a podcast a week. So far, we're out a few days, but hey, he works with us. That's what we need. But the point is, we were looking at how <laughs> we could download all these different programs to try learn how to do all this podcasting stuff. But truth is, it's affordable. It's much easier to have someone do it for you. You could go to prettyeasypodcast.com and you could get started today. So. I say go. I say, if you
0: want to be heard, if you have something to say, like we do, we love the sound of our own voices and we found Alan who lets our voices shine. So thank you, Alan at prettyeasypodcast.com easy podcast.com.